I want you to think back to the last argument you had with someone. I know there's some of you who say, well, I've never argued with anybody really. I know, but maybe you've, you've had a disagreement and you expressed it once or twice, maybe. Just think back to that time when you've had such a disagreement and you had perhaps an argument. How, how did you work to win over your point? How did you work to win over the point that you were trying to make? More than likely, in that argument, you're giving reasons why the other person shouldn't have any confidence in their point of view and their idea, because that's how disagreement works. Disagreement seeks to quell confidence. You see it in any relationship. Arguments seek to disintegrate the confidence in the position of the other person. It happens in marriage. One spouse might use anger to quell the confidence in the other when they disagree. You see it in cultural conversations. No matter what it might be, it might be something in the news or even between two friends at church who disagree over an issue. Maybe it's a government policy. Maybe it's whose football team is preeminent or which foods are disgusting, and I won't name which ones are and get into an argument with you about it. You know you're wrong. That's how arguments work, right? They seek to quell confidence in the other point of view. Where there is opposition, that opposition seeks to quell the confidence of the other side so they will give in on their viewpoint. That's what disagreement does. It seeks to quell confidence. But confidence that actually withstands Every withering argument from the opposition displays an increasing evidence of the truthfulness behind that argument when it suffers for it. Disagreement seeks to quell confidence, but resilience reveals the ultimate evidence of truthfulness. And that's what's highlighted in our passage. This is not here highlighting an argument over silly things like food or football But it is clear that when suffering comes to the life of a Christian, the whole point in the suffering is to make the Christian give in. To cause them to wither in their confidence about what they believe in regarding the Bible or the truth. And it is relentless. Disagreement seeks to quell confidence, but resilience reveals the ultimate evidence of truthfulness. Now, I want you to remember as we come into this passage again that Paul, in the beginning of this book, revealed three different evidences of true Christianity, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. That was back in chapter 1, verse 3. And chapters 1 through 3 is a discussion of what efforts that flow from faith actually look like. And Paul has been going back and forth to describe what those efforts that come from faith look like in describing his preaching when he came to them and their responses when they heard that preaching. It's what he did in chapter 1 verse 5, his preaching, then verses 6 through 10, their responses. It's what we've looked at in chapter 2. How did he come to them? Chapter 2 verses 1 to 12, that's his preaching. How did they respond? Verses 13 to 16, he just expands on this even more. And this shows us then the efforts that flow from faith. 
Now last week we began looking at the responses of the Thessalonians to Paul's preaching and we noted that in second or in first Timothy 2 verses 13 to 16 there were two ways that people respond to the preaching of God's word. You remember those, don't you? There were two different ways, two different groups of people describing two ways they respond to the word. In verses 13 to 14, we looked at those who genuinely welcome the word. There's confidence. In verses 15 to 16, which we'll look at today also, we see the second group, those who actively withstand the word. There's opposition. There's opposition and there's confidence. There's opposition that wants to wither the confidence of the others. There's confidence that withstands the opposition and shows the truthfulness of the word. That's what we're seeing in the response of the Thessalonians. So we began last week looking at those who genuinely welcome the word of God. Verses 13 to 14. Here's the confidence of the Thessalonians. And the confidence they had in the truth of Scripture, which was absolutely profound. And we wanted to ask what components actually comprise those who genuinely welcome the word. And we said there were three. Three different components of what people do with the word when they genuinely welcome it into their lives. And again, I I just marvel at verse 13 at how profound it is. When we constantly, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And we took from that two of these components. First, they publicly identify themselves by the preached word. We constantly thank God that when you receive, that's a, an outward reception, an official reception of the word of God which you hear from us. That reception was corporate, it was official, it was a public affirmation of the word that was preached by Paul and his ministry associates as being that by which they would publicly identify themselves, the preached word. The second component of what people do with the word when they genuinely welcome it into their lives is they internally embrace the preached word. You remember that. They internally embrace the preached word. You accepted it not as the word of men, and that word accept is different than the word reception that's found earlier. It's an internal reception, a personal reception. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And that word is doing its work among you who believe. That brings us this morning to the third component found in those who genuinely welcome the word, and we want to pick up there, and it's found in verse 14. What's the third component of those who genuinely welcome the word of God? Verse 14, they personally endure suffering for the preached word. They personally endure suffering for the preached word. Here's the resilience Here's the confidence demonstrated in the word of God. If this really is God speaking to us, what will we do with it? Especially when there's opposition to it, what will we do? We'll endure suffering. Is it worth suffering for the word of God? Is it worth enduring any amount of opposition? 
Of course it is, because who is it that can ultimately overcome the one who is ultimately for us and who is speaking to us? Suffering, because of allegiance to the scripture, cannot ultimately squelch divinely ingrained confidence in the Christian soul. Enduring suffering is actually an evidence of the divine work of the word and our unwavering confidence in the preached word being God's very word to us. And I want you to see in verse 14 how that is demonstrated. He begins by saying, for you, brethren. And that first word, for, is an important word, as all those little particles are. It means because. Because of what? To what is this tied in verse 13? It could be that he says, we know that the word is performing its work in you. Maybe it's tied to that last phrase, the word is doing its work in you. And we know that because we see how you suffer and you endure it. And that is the work of God as you're hearing the word. Or this little word for could be tied to the whole of verse 13 And it could be related to all of it. The evidence that you accepted the word that was preached as God's word is found in that you became imitators of those who originally suffered for that same preached word. What's the evidence that the word you accepted as God's word? You suffered for it. Likely, it's it's some combination of both of those ideas. The word is doing a work in you, and the evidence that that word is at work in you and that you accepted it as God's word is that you would suffer for it. If you don't want to suffer for the truth, just how effective is the word at work in your life? If you'd rather not suffer for the things of God, how valuable is God to you then? I am grateful he throws in the little statement you Brethren, just to remind them, I'm in this with you. We're a part of this together. You're my family because we are God's children. And you stand actually with all those in human history who also stood with God and stood with his word. That's what makes us brethren. That's how we display our brotherhood. You ever think of that? You As you suffer for the word, as you embrace the opposition that comes, as you endure it, you're standing in this seat of human history of all those who have heard the word, accepted it, and stood with it despite the opposition. And he wants them to see that even more clearly because they, he says, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You're just like these other churches. Now, literally, the phrase, you became imitators, is in what we call in Greek the passive voice, meaning you were made to become imitators. Something caused you outside of yourself to become imitators. It's not like you just said, hey, we've read about this, we've heard about this, let's imitate those so you actively imitate them. No, that's not the idea. Something caused you to imitate these churches and what that something was was the divine ordained plan for them to suffer. God determined that they would suffer for his word and in that it caused them to imitate churches that were in Judea. 
This is very similar to what Paul has already said back in chapter 1, verse 6, when he said, you also became imitators of us. It's the same passive voice. You were made to become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the same language. You were made to become imitators, but in verse 6 in chapter 1, it was of us and of the Lord, and here it is of the churches that are in Judea. He unpacks this idea even further. It's not just apostolic and Christological imitation here, it's also ecclesiological imitation. You became imitators, you mimicked the same way the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea acted when they went into suffering. Now, can I point your attention to something interesting here in this verse? Did you notice he did not call it the church of Judea? Did you notice that? He did not say the church as if one word in the singular would represent all the Christians in the area of Judea. He mentioned the churches, plural, in that region, in that geographical region. It's not accurate then to speak of all the Christians in a region as being a part of the church of that region. It would be inaccurate for us to say, hey, we're just all a part of the church of Kansas City. That would be inaccurate because every single local church, every gathering that's a true gathering of God's people under Christ is a representation of the body of Christ. So it's most appropriate to call them the churches, the churches in Kansas City, the churches of Judea. That word church literally means a gathering, a gathering Every official public gathering of Christians in the region, that comprises a church. But it's not just any gathering of Christians. It's a gathering of people who come from God, the churches of God. Do you see that phrase? The churches of God. The churches that find their source, their beginning, their genesis in God. It's not just any gathering. Is this a gathering that God himself has birthed? And literally, the next phrase says, the ones being in Judea, those churches of God that are in Judea and in Christ Jesus. They're gathered in a local geographical place, the region of Judea, that area that surrounds Jerusalem, Palestine, and their local churches, identifiable local churches. You could go to one of those local churches, you could attend, you could hear the preaching. And he wants to differentiate them from other local gatherings that believe they came from God. You know what those were called? By some, they were called the synagogue or the synagogue. The Jews believed that they came from God. The Jews believed that they were gatherings that met and they were established by God. But Paul says, no, the ecclesia, the churches, the gatherings that come from God in that region that are marked by their identity in Jesus Christ. They affirm the Messiah. These are the churches of God who are in Christ Jesus. A church then is a gathering of people who identify themselves by Jesus, the promised Messiah. How do you know where the Christians are? 
How do you know who is a Christian? They gather with other Christians who identify themselves as the followers of Jesus Christ. If you never identify yourself openly with the people who follow the Messiah, it is hard to say that you would actually be a Christian. You say, are you saying that if you're not a member of a church, you're not a Christian? Well, I'm saying, what evidence is there that you're a Christian if you refuse to gather with the people that God said the Lord died for? There should be some official connection of you to a local body of people who say we openly identify ourselves and connect ourselves to the person of the Messiah, the churches of God who are in Christ. In fact, Paul referred to this group of people back in chapter 1, verse 1, the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a local church. How did they know they became imitators of those churches in Judea? Did some of them travel back? Did some of them, some of them go back and hear the stories? Were any of them there? Not that we know of. How did they know? Well, Paul says, you are imitators of these churches, these true gatherings of Christians, because you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You suffered. You suffered. It's all one word in the Greek. You suffered. It's in the aorist tense, meaning you have suffered. It's pointing back to the original time when they received the word. In their conversion, they actually suffered for becoming Christians. They suffered hardship. They suffered opposition. Your conversion brought opposition. Do not be surprised, dear friends. Do not be surprised that the more open you are about your Christianity, the more opposition you will find. Do not be surprised, young believer, when you are so freshly converted and you're so filled with joy and hope in the Lord, do not be surprised when you begin to see people distance themselves from you. Or them to say, what what has happened to you? You used to be more like us. And they they would even prefer that you be the old person you were as bad as you might have been. I can remember a a dear brother who came to faith in Christ and he was a a boxer in his earlier days. He he was a bouncer at bars and he was a big burly guy. I remember when he came to faith in Christ, he, he, he just so changed. He was also an individual who was a racist. One of his daughters had married an African-American man and they had children whose skin was darker colored and he hated those grandchildren. His relationship was just tattered and torn with all the different people in his family. When he came to faith, he repented of all that and he loved his grandchildren and he did everything he could to get as close as he could to them and he loved his children was trying to repair every single relationship that he had been breaking all those years and he became a very humble man and a gentle person and I can remember listening to his children I I was actually physically present to hear his children berate him and wish that he would go back to that hateful racist individual that he used to be rather than this Christian 
And I would say, why? He was just easier to dismiss back then. It was harder to dismiss him now. And their hatred grew. That sounds odd, like it shouldn't be that way. But that's how it works, isn't it? Isn't it odd? You can be kind and gracious, patient. But if you disagree on fundamental self-identifying issues, hatred grows. Suffering grows. That's what happened to these Thessalonian Christians. I mean, you, you think about what happened with them. They, they were viewed as traitors. Traitors to their identity as Roman citizens and members of the Thessalonian community. They identified themselves more fundamentally as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that put them at odds with being citizens in Rome and Thessalonica. And you remember how much Thessalonica prided themselves in their Roman citizenship, so much so in such a close tie and connection to the Roman government that Rome gave them a hundred-year pass on paying any kind of taxes. That's how patriotic they were. And if you you stood against that kind of patriotism, you were no friend of that city. There was all kinds of social pressure placed on them to renounce that allegiance to Jesus because it, it, it because it put them at odds with everyone in the culture back in Acts chapter 17 the first eight to ten verses you see it the persecution began with Thessalonian Jews who were angered over jealousy it says in the text jealousy over other Thessalonian Jews embracing Christianity that was preached by Paul and Silas And these Jews then turned the argument from merely conversion from Judaism to Christianity to an argument of you've turned to Jesus against Rome. And in verse 5 of Acts 17, it says, they went and they took wicked men in the marketplace. That was the place of public commerce and cultural influence. And they formed a mob and they set the entire city in an uproar. And they drugged the leading Christian into the midst of that agora, that marketplace. And likely Jason, that leading Christian, had been a former Jew who was now housing Christians and a church. And he drugged them in front of the authorities right in the middle of that agora to the raised platform area where the city officials would sit, the Bema seat, and they brought formal accusations against him, charging him that they promoted a different king other than Caesar. This is what they said about those who converted from Judaism to Christianity. It was no longer just a religious argument. Now you're against all the culture. Now you stand against people in our culture. Verse 10 says, after the whole city was in an uproar, They rushed Paul out of the city because he was the primary preacher. He ran to Berea. Verse 13 of Acts 17 says, The Jews in Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, and they came there as well, and they agitated and stirred up the crowds the same way, and they ran him out of that city. And we have every reason to believe from 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that the persecution against this young church continued and it grew with intensity. There was all kinds of increasing pressure on them to quit their confidence in Christ and go back to the citizens that they were. It was easier to dismiss them back then. 
than to deal with them now. But they didn't. They withstood the pressure. They suffered. Now, if you notice, he says you became imitators. You became imitators of the churches in Judea. Why does he bring up those churches in reference to the way they're suffering in their city? What's he referring to by those churches? Those churches were the original Christians. That was where Christianity began, in Judea. The original group of Christians actually suffered for their faith in Christ. They were accused of not being true citizens of Israel, and so they received all the opposition of the Jewish leaders at that time, just like the Thessalonians were being accused of not being true citizens of Thessalonica or of Rome. You remember when they hauled Jesus in front of Pilate? Did they accuse Jesus of just violating some Old Testament laws? No, they said this man stands against who? Caesar. You're not a friend of Caesar if you think that this man should live. That's what they did to the Lord. That's what they did to Paul. That's what they did to Peter. That's what they did to all of the Jewish people in the original days of Christianity. And Paul says, you're in the same historical stream as those Christians in the very opening days when the church was founded. Don't let opposition and disagreement dissuade you or silence you. Be resilient. We're going to face all kinds of similar issues. Do you hear the drumbeat? Do you hear it in our culture? The culture creates different standards. They have different starting points for almost everything in life. They don't start their argument where we start ours, do they? No, they assume there is no God. They assume that humanity is all that there really is. Naturalism rules our day. Whatever's natural, whatever's human is what's ultimate. So they have different definitions and standards for things like sexuality and gender and family structures, and even in how you define who and what a person is. When does personhood begin? We don't talk about when life begins. We talk about when personhood begins. What is marriage? What are the rules for divorce and remarriage? What is race and racism? What is justice and social justice? The non-Christian culture operates from a fundamentally alternative point of view. There is no God. That's not their starting point. God is who we make him to be in line with what we think in this moment of history. I encourage you to go out and read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I really think this is a helpful book. If you want to see the underpinnings, if you want to see the philosophical divide in our culture today, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, may be describing it better than any book that I've seen recently. As he gets into the underbelly of what's causing the culture to divide against Christians. But you know what it is. It's not hard to see. We believe the Bible. We, we take the Bible and we think this is the eternal God who made everything actually speaking to us. 
So we can't start somewhere else. We can't start with a different starting point. There's not common ground for us to agree with the culture because we actually believe he has spoken on all these issues. And so we're going to find ourselves increasingly out of step with our world. What we think is right, they will challenge as wrong. And what we know to be wrong, they will celebrate as being good. And there will be little toleration for our deviation. Your employment could increasingly be on the line. If you do not use the pronouns they tell you to use, you could lose your job. Your ability to own and operate a business could be on the line, as we've already seen business operators taken to court, even to the Supreme Court. Your communication in public forums may be limited or even assaulted. Your family members may actually shun you. Your friends may may find very little value in your relationship. Or even potentially worse, it could be that any public acknowledgement of your viewpoints or your application of a biblical worldview, even within the confines of your own family, might have you severely fined or even jailed today. That is not uncommon in our world. If you suggest that's an exaggeration, that it doesn't really match reality, I would say your eyes are not open to what's happening. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to fight so that the world just accepts your argument? Or will you say, I'm going to stand here on the word. I'm going to argue for it as logically as I can, as kindly and as passionately as I can. But I'm willing, I'm willing to suffer for it. Because I'm going to hold to what I believe is true. What, what is it that you're willing to lose? What are you willing to lose? How will you discern when it is that you should be wisely silent or boldly open? Who will turn against you because of your connection to the scripture? Who is it? Who's going to stop speaking to you? Who's going to tone down their friendship with you? Or of all things, stop following you on social media? I've seen people actually have emotional meltdowns over that. They didn't like my post. They must hate me. Oh, friends, it's way worse than that. (laughs) Where will you go to church? Where will you choose to align yourself as a Christian? Will it be with a place and a people who are steadfastly focused on this is the word of God and what it says defines us, it defines life, or will it be something else? A place that feels more comfortable in the culture? It's not a matter of if this is coming, it's just a matter of when it's going to show itself in your life and how. Anyone who desires to live godly, according to 2 Timothy 3 Anyone who desires to live, not just who does live, but desires to live godly, will suffer persecution. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. You know what the primary evidence is that you welcome the word? You're willing to suffer for it. You're willing to suffer loss for it. 
Now, that is going to challenge you because you're going to, you're going to sit there at your home and think, is this really how it's going to work out? Is this really what's coming? Is this really how, who's going to turn? Well, it might be. Are you, are you ready to stand for that? It's coming. It's here. It will increase. Those are people who stand with God. They welcome the word because they publicly identify themselves with the preached word as God's word. They internally embrace the preached word as God's word and they personally endure suffering for the preached word because it is God's word. Now what about those on the other side? This is where Paul turns next. There's two groups of people who respond to the word. Those who welcome it and those who withstand it. And he takes verses 15 and 16 and he begins to unpack. Here are the characteristics of those who actually withstand the word. Here's what you need to know about them. Here's what you should have in your mind as you begin to feel the pressure. As you see it happening around you. Here is the characteristics of those who actively withstand the word of God. Now I understand that when we read these verses in verses 15 to 16... It reflects an extreme situation. And we might be tempted to believe that the current opposition that's increasing around us is not quite as bad as what we're seeing here. And praise God, I don't know of any martyrs on our membership role yet. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that when I look across the room, I'm, I'm seeing faces that, that I've been praying for through the membership directory, and I haven't had to go in and take any of them out yet and do any funerals because they've lost their life because of faithfulness to Christ. We're, we're not seeing that kind of opposition yet, are we? We're not. So some might say, well, this doesn't even really relate to where we are. And I want you to be careful with that because we're going to see Paul do something very interesting in these verses that should make you think a bit differently. These are not just the extremes. Here are the characteristics of anyone who withstands the word of God. Some of those show themselves in more extreme ways than other at different times, but here are the characteristics of them that you need to be aware. And we'll note five of them, just five different ways to describe those who actively withstand the preached word as God's word. First, they silence God's word. Here's what you need to expect. They silence God's word. Describing the Jews from verse 14, in verse 15, Paul says, those Jews killed, they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. This is really a fascinating description. It's, it's not a description of those who are actually opposing the Thessalonian Christians, but a description of the Jewish opponents of Christianity in the opening days who killed the Lord and killed the prophets. Now, what did those original opponents of the first Christian churches do? They, they murdered Jesus. And that's clear as we read through the gospel accounts. A significant portion of Jesus' ministry, the Jewish religious leaders were actively plotting to have Jesus killed. Why? Why did they want to kill him? It's not that they just wanted to push him off in a cultural corner. They wanted to kill him. 
Why? They didn't want him to speak anymore. It's not that they just wanted people not to listen to him. They didn't want him speaking anymore. What he spoke, he said, was coming from God. And they didn't want that anymore. Repetitiously through the Gospel of John, you will read of this increasing drumbeat of their desires to kill the Lord. John 5.18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. John 7 verse 1, Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. John 8, 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. John 11, verses 47 to 53, talks about the Jewish leaders getting together, the religious leaders getting together, and they're making a commitment to kill him. And they even used, the high priest of that day said there was a prophecy that said it was expedient for one man to die for the whole nation, therefore it was God's will that they kill him. And the text says in John 11, so from that day on they planned together to kill him, and they did. Peter called the Jews on that murderous act in Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 3, 13, Peter describes the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. You killed him, referring to the Jewish people. And Paul referred to the death of Jesus as the transgression of the Jews, Romans 11, verse 11. Jesus had been telling his disciples over and over, hadn't he? We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. Peter didn't like that. You remember that? And over and over, Jesus would say, but we're going. We're going. He set his face towards Jerusalem. They couldn't move him from it. And he kept saying, they're going to kill me. And they did. But they didn't just kill Jesus. They also killed the prophets who were the mouthpieces of God. Jesus being the very word of God, everything he spoke, everything he did displayed who God was. They even killed those who were the mouthpieces of God, the prophets. This is interesting in this text because the text mentions Jesus first and then the prophets second. Some believe that this is referring to the New Testament prophets. Prophets like James, who was murdered. Prophets like Paul, who eventually was murdered. People who were actually speaking divine revelation and completing the new covenant revelation. Prophets who were actually, when they spoke, they were speaking as God's word that could be recorded in Scripture. But I tend to think that this is referring to not just the New Testament prophets, but all the prophets, both New Testament and Old Testament. Do you remember Jesus' scathing words in Matthew 23 when he addressed the religious leaders? Matthew 23, just an example, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Now you know why they wanted to kill him. 
Therefore, he goes on, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Listen to this. From the blood of righteous Abel, what chapter of the Bible is Abel in? All the way back in Genesis. From righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, all the way into the exile. The son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her, her wings and you were unwilling. You killed the prophets in the Old Testament. You're going to kill the prophets coming after me because that marks you. You do not want to hear God's word. It's what prophets do. It's what Jesus did. He revealed the word. They wanted to silence that. The Jews of that opening day of Christianity were just like those historical people who killed the prophets in the Old Testament and now are even persecuting the Thessalonian Christians. Your countrymen are just like those Jews who for generations killed the prophets and murdered the Lord. You remember what the Jewish leaders did when they stoned Stephen? What caused them to stone him? I was reading back on that Acts 7.56 They cried out when they heard Stephen rehearsing all of Revelation and pointing to Christ and saying that he saw Christ in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice and they put their hands over their ears. Why? They don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want to hear it. Paul, before he became a Christian... And Acts 8 says he was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison. He wanted to kill them. What's fascinating is in Acts 8, when it says that, you know how the church responded? The text is very clear. Therefore, in light of all of that murder, those who had been scattered because of the persecution, went about preaching the word. They didn't stop. They didn't stop. Now let's ask the question, why does Paul bring up all of this regarding the religious leaders in Judea? Why does he bring that up to these Thessalonian people? Because those who are persecuting the Thessalonians are just like them. They don't want to hear God's word, so they're attempting to silence the source of God's word. This is why I think we should be careful before we dismiss this reference as only an historical extreme and not a contemporary possibility. Jesus indicated that Israel had historically killed the prophets and they did not want to listen to and they likened his contemporary opponents, he likened his contemporary opponents to those historical figures and now Paul indicated that the Jews of Jesus' day killed him and the prophets and likened the Thessalonian opponents 
to those historical figures as if we should continue to see that same trend. Every generation of unbelief will have its opponents and those opponents will do everything that is necessary to silence God's word. It happened in the days of the Roman Catholic Church who wanted to murder Martin Luther. It was true in the persecution of many of the Baptists of the 16th and 17th centuries who were murdered. It is true in every generation. If you don't think that is going on, it is going on all over our world today. People are losing their life simply for their allegiance to the truth of Scripture. Where you see people wanting to ban biblical revelation, you are seeing the active opposition to God's word, and they want the word silenced. And do not be surprised at what links they will go to, to rub out the scriptures. But it goes further. They want to silence the word, but also, there's another way to describe those who actively withstand the preached word, they remove God's spokesman. They silence the word, but they also remove God's spokesman. They take out those who are revealing the scripture, but those who represent it, not just reveal it, but represent it, they want them out also. Paul says, they not only killed the Lord and the prophets, but they drove us out. They drove us out of the city. He's referring to that time when he was run out of Thessalonica and Berea. He uses the word, Ek dioko. Dioko is the word for persecution and he intensifies it here. They drove us out. They cast us out. They persecuted us to an extreme. Him, his ministry team, rushed out of Thessalonica. They drove us out. But pay close attention to that. Who drove us out? In the context, he's still referring to the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets. They killed Jesus and the prophets and they drove us out. Well, it wasn't historically the people who murdered Jesus that drove Paul out of Thessalonica. It wasn't the the Jewish people who killed the New Testament prophets or even the ancient Old Testament prophets that drove Paul out. What's he doing here? He's telling you, the same spirit that was alive in those who persecuted the church is the same spirit in the people driving us out as well. It's still happening. It's still happening. Paul and his companions were spokesmen for the word. And they were being opposed at every single turn by the same kind of thinking that murdered the Lord and those who revealed God's word. Where do you think hostility toward the word is going to fall first? The loudmouths on Sunday morning. That's where. Take out those who are reiterating the scripture. Silence them. Don't, don't be surprised. It's coming. It's already been rumbling. Pastors receive a certain kind of tax status. It's kind of confusing at times, but that's been on the chopping block in Congress for a few years now. Churches and the tax status of churches is on the line. That's coming. In Houston, a few years ago, the mayor of the city wanted transcripts of preachers being sent to her office so lawyers could scour the transcripts to see if there was any quote-unquote hate speech. 
Really? This is not, this is not somewhere out there. That's here. That's here. You hear the rumbling. If we can stop them in the pulpit from teaching what the Bible says, then we can silence those spokesmen. We can get rid of the word. There's a third way to describe those who are actively withstanding the preached word as God's word. Third, they find God's displeasure. They find God's displeasure. Paul says they are not pleasing to God. Who's not pleasing to God? Well, again, in the context, he's still referring to those who killed the Lord and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God. Everyone who's in the historical stream of opposition to God's word, they are not pleasing to God. Now, why would he bring this up? Why would he say they're not pleasing to God? Well, Paul knows this issue all too well. Why did he persecute Christians when, before he was a believer? Why did he do it? Because he thought he was serving God, didn't he? He was so intense in his persecution of Christians because he thought this was the will of God. They are against God. So to please God would be to get rid of them. Acts 26 verse 9. Paul reflecting on those days, he said, I thought to myself in that unconverted state, he said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests. Why did the chief priests give him authority to do that? They thought it was the will of God. But also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Why? Because I believed that was right, that it pleased God. Being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is how intense Paul's or Saul's rage was because he believed it was righteous rage, that it represented God, that it pleased him. Jesus refers to the generations before the Lord returns. John 16, 2 They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Where do you think that's going to show up? More than likely in liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity that denies the inerrancy of the scripture, the sufficiency of the scripture, that redefines it, that rewrites it, that dismisses it. They'll stand in opposition to those who have tied themselves themselves to the scripture and they're going to say, listen, those churches that are enslaved to that ancient book in that ancient way, that's not how God thinks today. They're going to think they're actually serving God's purposes by opposing the details of God's word. Those who withstand God's word, they're going to drape themselves in religious terminology with God's name, just like it happened in Thessalonica and in the New Testament era of the prophets, in the Old Testament era of the prophets, and even as they killed the Lord, they thought they were doing God's service. They're not pleasing to God. 
They're going to find God's displeasure. A fourth way to describe those who actively withstand the word is they oppose God's salvation. This is really interesting to me, really fascinating. It's at the end of verse 15, the beginning of verse 16. Right after it says they're not pleasing to God, but what are they? They're hostile to all men. And how are they hostile? Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. They're not just hostile to those who speak the word or those who represent the word. They also hinder anyone from speaking so that people might become Christians. They don't want anyone to hear the gospel, which then makes them hostile to all people because they don't want anyone to be saved. They're going to view the Bible as hateful. They're going to want to preserve people from the Bible. They view the scriptures as error. They want to keep people from following it. In classic liberal theology that denies the veracity, the authority, the sufficiency of the scriptures, they tend to turn religion into not divine salvation, but just divine humanitarian efforts. And you hear it today. I listened to a so-called evangelical redefined salvation today as not being saved from your sins, but being saved from the ultimate sin of white people and racism. It's common. Let's redefine salvation today. Let's redefine it. And let's not tell people that their soul is at danger because of their offense towards a holy God and their sin. There's something else. There's something else. You're not doing enough humanitarian effort. Salvation is when you just good, do good deeds to your culture. You'll know God's favor if you're just a kind person. If you just do good philanthropic work, that is salvation. That changes salvation. So the world will laud. They'll even fund such efforts to build houses, beautify neighborhoods, feed the poor, as long as none of those efforts are preparatory or connected to sharing a more spiritual message of the need of all people to be saved from the wrath of God. If you add that, they will oppose you. What you will find is that the world will support us as long as we don't want people to be saved. That's what was happening with Paul. They would oppose him because they did not want anyone to hear about salvation. In that way, they became hostile to everyone. That makes the world hostile to everyone if they don't want the world to hear what would actually save them from sin. And I think you'll see Christians tilt away from saying that there is salvation in only one man, Jesus Christ, by faith in only him. Because the opposition's too intense. Or we'll make salvation something less than it is. Or it's just a general, casual belief in Jesus as a good religious leader, one among many who simply wanted to release the physically oppressed from their evil oppressors. And the gospel then becomes culturally defined in terms of social justice or social welfare. 
It's not the first time in human history, friends, this has happened. This was active in the early 1900s as well in our own country and across Europe. We thought everything was getting better. We thought the gospel was making strides because the world was becoming a better place. And then World War I happened and everybody said, no, it's not. Then World War II happened and they said, this is an evil, wicked place. And it's growing in opposition. They don't want people to hear of salvation. Fifth, they receive God's judgment. It's the fifth way to describe those who actively withstand the preached word of God. They receive God's judgment. Verse 16 is really interesting. Here's the result of all of their withstanding of the word of God. The result is they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come to them upon them to the utmost. It's as if there is a reservoir building. And every generation is filling up the reservoir to the point at which it will unleash the ultimate wrath of God. Again, I just want to point out, who is the they here who will receive this wrath? Well, in the context, it's still referring to those who murdered Jesus and the prophets. But it's those who are withstanding the Thessalonians. It's everyone in the stream of human history who withstands the word of God. They're filling up. And actually the text to fill up is in the aorist tense saying it's already filled up. You do understand. There's nothing more that the unbelieving world has to do to fill up the reservoir of the wrath of God. It's full. It's complete. In fact... He says, but the wrath has come upon them. It's already on them. It's come upon them. You say, well, what what wrath is this? Is this the wrath of Romans 1 that just delivers them over so that they don't think properly? And they're given over to their sins? Not likely. This word wrath was used in chapter 1 to describe eternal wrath. It will be used in chapter 5 to talk about the future eternal wrath of God. And so likely it means the same here. You say, well, how has it already come upon them when we've not seen the wrath of God yet, that eternal wrath? Well, Paul is making a pretty powerful point. He says, it has come upon them unto the end. That last phrase, to the uttermost in the New American Standard, literally, ace telos, unto the end, to the end. That wrath is abiding on them as if that eternal wrath is a reality now waiting to be unleashed at the end. That's what he's saying. There's nothing they need to do to fill up any more sin in the reservoir to ensure their eternal destruction. It is there. You say, well, does this mean that no one can be saved who is lost? Well, think about what Paul would be saying about the Jewish people. Is he saying all the Jewish people are now under the wrath of God and there's no hope of their salvation? I don't think he's saying that because in other places he looked for their salvation. Did he not? He pled for their salvation. Romans 9, 1, he had great sorrow, unceasing grief in his heart. He wants them to be saved. And he's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh, Jewish people. Romans 10, 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He still believed they could be saved, even though wrath had come upon them. Eternal wrath. Romans eleven twenty five. 25. 
I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Who is that? The Jewish people, the nation of Israel, named by its political national name, Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. So Paul believed that there was a time when the Jewish people as a nation would come to saving faith. But if they persist in unbelief and opposition to the word, there is nothing else that must be done to fill up what is necessary for eternal wrath to fall upon them, though he's still pleading for their salvation and expects that it will happen. This is those who withstand the word. They silence God's word. They remove God's spokesman. They find God's displeasure. They oppose God's salvation. They receive God's judgment. Now, why does he want you to know all of that about those who oppose the word? Why does he have to outline all of that? So that you don't lose confidence when it comes. Disagreement, opposition, wants to silence, it wants to squelch, it wants to quell your confidence. The greater the intensity of the opposition, the more you start to doubt. Is this really right? Should I suffer for this? Well, how do you overcome that? Remind yourself, what is it that is characteristic of those who withstand the word of God? Go over it again. Know that this is true of them. Don't be those who lose confidence in the word of God because you know this has been happening throughout human history from Abel all the way to the present, all the way up to the very end when the wrath of God does come. Don't lose heart. No, they're going to withstand the word. You withstand that. You maintain confidence. You be resilient because your resiliency then will show the truthfulness of the gospel. Let your resilience highlight the stable foundation of the gospel in front of a world that is opposing you. And as it keeps coming and slamming against you and you press back in resilient hope and trust, you show people around you, yes, there's truth here. Yes, there's hope here. Yes, there's something worth fighting for here. Don't lose confidence. Have confidence in God. In fact, you knowing what's coming to the unbelieving that is a settled fact that is coming as if it were happening even now should cause you to have compassion to the, for the unbelieving and pray like Paul was for the unbelieving Jews that they would be saved, that they would turn. Have an urgency to that. Keep communicating the truth of the gospel, but above all, Value Jesus. Value him and his word more than you value the protection of your own life. Sure, go back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Pray for the martyred church today. See what's happening in our world. And don't let that cause you to shrink back. Be ever, ever more faithful to the word of God. It's coming. It's here. Some of you are facing it in your families. Some of you are facing it in your workplace. You see it. You're staring into it. Don't lose confidence. Let's pray together.